The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Paul's letter, his second letter to the Thessalonians this morning, chapter 2, uh, the whole chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will fill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. For this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. And now, gracious God, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you in Jesus Christ. It is our rock and our redeemer. You know, with the warmer weather that's uh, come upon us, uh, one of the things that people uh, start to do now is head back to the beach. Any uh, beach lovers here? Yeah, a few. Okay, good to see. Okay, I uh, 
As a kid, I was very much a lover of the beach. I used to love to go and, uh, and swim, particularly surf beaches. Not the, just the, the still flat water, but I love the, uh, the surf and the, uh, and the waves. But I'm no surfer in any way, shape, or form, but I love to be able to get in there and, and body surf on the waves. You know, you sort of time your run perfectly, you catch the wave, and you body surf your way into, uh, into the, uh, the shore. Unless you got dumped, of course, by uh, one of those huge big breakers. You know, one of the things which uh, I remember particularly as a kid, one of, one of my first, uh, one of my very few first experiences of the uh, of swimming at the uh, at the Sunshine Coast, uh, I remember that uh, you know we, we we got to the beach and there was a, a crowd of people everywhere and you know I sort of went down into the water and and sort of went out a little ways and uh, I was just loving my time ducking under the waves and you know sort of trying to catch the waves back in and that sort of thing. But after a while, as you, as you know, when you're sort of doing that in the surf, it really wears you out. So I got out and I sort of just got out of the water and went to walk up the beach to where I knew mum and dad were, and, and they weren't there. There was, they were nowhere to be seen. I looked around, I was sort of checking out all these faces that were on the beach and, and the towels and that sort of thing, and thinking, I can't see them anywhere. And I started to get really, really anxious about, you know, why, why on earth, where, where could mum and dad be? And then the next minute, my dad, my dad uh, calls me and he says, and he says to me, hey, I'm here. He said, the mum's just up there. And he looked and he pointed and there was mum about 100 metres back up, you know, back up the beach, up there uh, where they'd always been. And I hadn't realised it, but whilst I'd been in the water, the current had actually dragged me down the beach so far that when I, you know, when I sort of got into the water, I just automatically thought that I could get out of the water and be in exactly the same place, and that's where mum and dad would be, but that wasn't the case. And I, I learned a really big lesson that day, and that lesson was this, that without a clear and dependable reference point, it was easy to, to, to drift and get lost. Without keeping my eye on that reference point where mum and dad were, and you know, you know, when, I, when my kids were, were old enough to go swimming in the surf, I would tell them that you know, they needed to keep an eye on where mum and I, you know, where, uh, where their mum and I were, so that they didn't get dragged away by the current. Keeping a dependable reference point. Now, this is what was happening to the Thessalonian believers that we read about here in chapter two of Paul's letter, because some of them had actually lost sight of the truth that they had been taught, that which should have been their reference point, and this led to them being unsettled and alarmed in their faith. We see that in the, uh, the opening verses of this passage this morning. Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, not to be unsettled or alarmed. Paul is responding to a specific issue in the life of the church there. And that issue, namely, was about the, the return, the, 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 the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of these Christians had actually, they'd been deceived into believing that Jesus' return had already happened. You know, that which they'd been eagerly and expectantly waiting for, this glorious return of Christ, they had been fooled into thinking that it had already taken place. And it was causing them a great deal of unsettledness and anxiety. Interesting, that word uh, that, that's translated here in our Bibles, that's uh, that shaken in mind or unsettledness is, is uh, uh, akin to, uh, it's, it's used of when a ship 
is actually um, loose from its moorings in the midst of a storm. You know, there's a, the waves batter the ship and that sort of stuff, and it drags its anchor or that sort of thing, and it gets dripped, and it gets carried away, and it gets put in this really kind of perilous uh, position. That's the kind of uh, picture that Paul has in mind as he thinks of the uh, of, of what these Thessalonian believers are actually, you know, like in their own minds. Now, back in his first letter, which we've just uh, finished last uh, a couple of weeks ago, you might recall that Paul had been responding in, in, in that letter to a concern that the that the Thessalonian Christians had, and that was the the the, the, uh, the concern that some of their loved ones who had died would actually miss this glorious return of Jesus when he came. You know that day when, when Jesus would come back and claim his, his church for himself, where, where his glory would, would shine and all of the world would, would finally see that he is indeed God and King. But here just a few months later, some of these Christians think that they've missed this coming altogether and it causes them to doubt and to fear. And the cause of their concern appears to be something that they have heard. Paul goes on to say, he says, I do not want you to be unsettled, or shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul says that you know, it would seem that, 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 uh, that the report that's come back to him from the, uh, from the Thessalonian believers is that they've heard either through a, a prophecy, which is that, that word spirit there, a prophecy or, or a report that's, that's come to them, or perhaps even a, a letter, a, a false letter that has supposedly come to them from Paul and his companions. These people have taken this to, uh, to be teaching from the Apostle Paul himself. And Paul quickly wants to set them straight. And he does that in verses 3 and 4 of our passage this morning, where he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Paul quickly wants to set, set them straight in their minds, to, to, to set them back on the right course, to get them back to seeing that proper reference point that they should have in their lives in regards to their faith. And he asserts, he firmly asserts, that, that he does not want them to be deceived. And folks, deception today particularly, and as it has been throughout history, deception is so much a tool of evil and the devil. The scriptures remind us that the, the devil is the great deceiver. You go right back to the beginning of your Bibles in Genesis 3, we see that Satan deceived Adam and Eve there in the garden, telling them that they couldn't trust God. That what God was saying, you know, to them, that you know, that if they ate of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. The devil said, "No, you won't. That you'll be like God." And so they ate of the fruit. The devil deceived them. In Second Corinthians chapter eleven and verse three, it says this: "But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning." Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Here is Paul writing again to, it, to the church in Corinth, and he says that he does not want them to be deceived by the devil, by his cunning. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, it tells us 
and the great dragon, speaking of the devil, was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We see there this, that the devil is again this, this one who deceives the whole world. And finally in Revelation 20 and verse 3, and it says, And he, that is God, threw Satan into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. And after these things, he would be released for a short time. Even here in this passage this morning, Paul writes in, in, in verse 9, it says, you know, here, that, um, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. As we see that the devil uses deception as one of his main tools of getting people to, 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 to not believe the truth about God, of deceiving us into thinking that, you know, we ourselves are our gods, that we ourselves have the knowledge and the, the ability and the wisdom to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong, and what is good and what is bad. You know, folks, today we, we all swim, if you like. We all swim in, in, a, in a sea of, of knowledge and of, of, of opinion, of knowledge, of, of, of ideologies and philosophies. And we all have a worldview. If you want to hear more about that, come along and uh, hear Bill speak about that next week at his third Monday night talk. But we all swim in, in, this, in this, this soup, if you like, of all these things, of all these ideologies and and, and knowledge and information and things like that. And unless we ourselves have got a true reference point, we can quickly be swept, swept away in the, in the current of deception. And that reference point that we're talking about here, of course, is the, the truth of God's Word in the Scriptures. The truth that centers around the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and His eternal plan of salvation for mankind. So in order to counteract this deception, Paul goes on to affirm certain facts that Jesus will not re- his, his, he will not return until two specific events actually precede it. And that which he refers to here is our, the, the rebellion and the appearing of the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. Now, one of the significant difficulties that we, that we find here as we, we delve into this passage is that Paul himself is actually referring to, to information which he has shared with the Thessalonians, but which he doesn't elaborate on in this letter. There's this kind of shared knowledge between Paul and the Thessalonian church that we, as readers of the letter, are not privy to. Look at verse 5, where, where Paul writes this. He says, that, uh, do, not, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And he goes on to say, and you know what is restraining you. Paul is, is, is relying on a shared information that, that, uh, that, that the Thessalonians already have, that, that Paul has shared with them, but which we ourselves have got no idea what he's actually said. 
there's been a there's been a great deal of debate over the years as to, to what Paul might be referring to when he speaks of, of this thing called the rebellion. I mean, it could refer to a, a political rebellion, a religious rebellion, but it's most likely a, a combination of, of the two. It speaks of a time where there will be an, an increase in wrongdoing and general opposition to authority in the world, and particularly to God and His authority. Uh, the, uh, the theologian and, and, and pastor, or well-known theologian and pastor John Scott, writing about this, says, says this, he says, the rebellion will take place, according to Paul, publicly and visibly on the world stage and be seen as a worldwide breakdown of the rule of law, of the administration of justice, and of the practice of true religion. The whole world, including sections of the church, will be in rebellion against God and His Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what our, our, our world history is, is, is heading towards. This particular, these particular events. God is giving us an insight, if you like, into His eternal plan. We're getting the heads up. Even Jesus himself spoke at a time in the future when there would be a great falling away, a great apostasy in the church. Matthew 24, verses 10 to 12, Jesus says, At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That love toward God, and perhaps even to one another, that love will grow cold. Jesus says there will be many who will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. Now, this rebellion will most likely come about as a result of the appearing of this one whom Paul refers to here as the man of lawlessness. Um, John explains in, in 1 John 2 again, this person known as the Antichrist. He is the one who epitomizes all opposition to law and authority. He will be the, the leader of this rebellion and it will result in him exalting himself above all. The passage says here in verse 4, he will make himself the object of all worship. He will do away with, with, with worship of all other gods and everything else, and he will set himself up as the object of all worship and even declare himself to be God. So he will set himself up in the temple of God. And again, the temple here that, that Paul is referring to, again, is, it's a bit unclear of, of what he's saying here. You know, some believe it to be the, the real temple, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, but for that to be the case, then it would need to be rebuilt. Others think it, the temple is referring to God's church. Others think it's, you know, it's a, a, another particular temple, a temple that will be the, the, the focus of, of, of world religion in that day. And there's a lot of conjecture, but I, I do like I. Howard Masters' view on this, where he says it's, he sees it more as a, a metaphorical and, and typological language pointing us to the, the, the complete and utter usurping of the place of God in the world. The temple was meant to be the dwelling place of God amongst his people. I have Marshall here who sees it as, 
this, this temple points to the, the usurping of the actual place of God in the world. And that's what this Antichrist figure is, is, is going to want to do. And the reason that this rebellion and this appearing of the man in lawlessness has not yet occurred is because of something or someone that is holding to back his revealing. We see that again in our passage this morning, where Paul writes these words. He said, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him. It's restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. And then later on, it goes on to say, Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So Paul, first of all, refers to a what, and then a, a, a he, a, a power, and a person. And again, there's a whole heap of conjecture around this as to what Paul can be saying here. Some have taken it to be the, in, in Paul's day, that the power of the Roman, the, the Roman Empire itself. There was this thing known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And that peace across the, the empire was actually upheld and, and sustained by the power of the Roman army. Any kind of uh, you know, threat to that peace, the army would come in and, and quickly do away with it. But of course, that power of the empire was also centered in the person of the emperor, Caesar, he calls that. As some have seen it as that. Some have viewed it as, as Satan himself. Some even view it as the Holy Spirit as having a, a restraining role upon, you know, upon this appearing of the man of lawlessness. And others have seen it in the ch- as the church and the preaching of the gospel. But as that, you know, as the, as the church carries out its ministry and the proclamation of the gospel goes out into the world, that it is having a restraining effect. It's interesting that probably one of the greatest theologians who ever lived, the, uh, the person Augustine, uh, actually found this passage to be the most difficult to understand and end up declaring that, to be honest with you, I have no idea what Paul's talking about at all. Paul goes on to say that, although this man of lawlessness has an appearance, it was plain for him to see that the secret power of lawlessness was already at work in the world and would continue to be so. That it would be uh, a power that would be being seen in the world in, in different kind of contexts, but it would be seen in, in a controlled and a restrained manner until this man of lawlessness is revealed. And the, I guess the temptation for us today is this: is that you know we we want to you know uh, try and work out who this man of lawlessness is. And when I was uh, you know Carl and I was starting our first year of, of Bible college and. At that particular time, back in the mid-90s, there was a big upsurge again in churches, particularly here in Brisbane, but I'm sure it would have been in other places as well, about, you know, the, the, how the end times would work out and who the man of lawlessness would be and, you know, and all these sorts of things. And, and everyone was getting themselves tied up in knots about, you know, who can it be you know, and, and those sorts of things. And, and what it was is, is it was actually taking, it was it's really diverting the church away from our true and proper mission, and that was of proclaiming the gospel to the lost, to those who were lost in darkness and sin. And that can still be the same danger for us today, that we can get so caught up in these, these, these things which they'll be revealed in their time. And when they are revealed, then we'll know, we'll see, because we'll have the Bible to guide us and, and lead us and help us to understand these things. 
But in the meantime, it's not about, you know, sort of delving into this sort of stuff and getting lost in it and making that our priority, but rather be continue to be about the work that God has called us to, and that is the proclamation of the gospel. Now, one thing I didn't want to get into in this passage this morning was get lost in this man of lawlessness and who could it be and all those sorts of things. Because it's a fruitless exercise. It's a worthless exercise. But what we will see is many antichrists will appear. Antichrist figures will appear. Back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, the apostle writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We can expect that there will be many antichrist figures that will be, you know, that will come in this world. Those who oppose God and seek to usurp His power and authority to deceive His people and to lead them astray, but not just the church, but the world in itself. They may be figures. They may be people. They may also be powers that are exerting influence in the world, but when this man of lawlessness comes, he himself will embody the full gamut of evil. He will be the epitome of all evil, and yet many will see him as good. Many will look to him and think that he is good for our work. Even today, we can see people in our society calling that which is evil and harmful good. Don't, don't we see that today? Yes. And that which is good, evil, and wicked? That is only going to continue on. But this man of lawlessness, when he comes, he will have sway over much of the world. But when Jesus appears, we are told in verse 8 that Jesus will overthrow him by the breath of his mouth and will destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This person will be viewed by people in the world as the antithesis, oh sorry, as, the, as the, the epitome of all power and of all worship and of all glory. But when we're told when Jesus arrives, all he'll need to do is just speak a word and this person will be completely destroyed and wiped out. There'll be no battle. It'll just be Jesus speaks and that's it. He's done with. And this is his destiny. That Paul goes back in verse 3 and calls him not just a man of lawlessness, but the son of destruction. In other words, the person who is destined to destruction. Jesus' power is far greater than any power this man of lawlessness will have. And he will only have to speak, and that will be enough. You know, sadly, many people will put their faith and trust in this man of lawlessness and worship him. They'll be deceived by his counterfeit miracles and his signs and wonders that he'll be able to do by the power of Satan, which Paul speaks about here in this passage. But their destiny will be like this. They will perish. And the reason they perish is because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. 
see that in the passage. If we pick it up again in verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. They rejected God and they rejected His Son, Jesus Christ, who Himself is the way, the truth, and the life, as we read in John chapter 4. And because they chose this course of action, we read that God therefore gives them over to their deception and He confirms them in it. That's what Paul is talking about when he says here, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that many believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What Paul is saying there is that, you know, it's, God is basically, you know, allowing these people, you know, the, 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 the choice which they, which they make themselves. He affirms them in their choice and actually allows that delusion to take hold in their life. So much so that it leads them to their full and complete destruction, that, 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 that judgment of God. We see something similar in, uh, you know, in Romans chapter, chapter 1, where it says you know, that, uh, that these people had made choices to, uh, to oppose God and to, to worship the created things instead of the Creator. And three times in Romans chapter 1, in verse 24, 26, and 28, it says, and God handed them over. He gave them over to their sin. And what that tells us is that, you know, why the Bible, you know, often encourages people to respond to God when they have the chance is because the more we say no to God, the more we reject Him, the more we reject His truth, the harder our hearts become towards God and His gospel. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Folks, there is a danger, and I've said this before from the pulpit, there is a danger coming along here each and every Sunday, hearing the Word of God proclaimed, hearing the, you know, having the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit come to us in our hearts, and we keep re- denying that, rejecting it, turning away from it. The more we do that, the harder our hearts become towards God and we are confirmed more and more in our disbelief and therefore in God's judgment and God's eternal punishment. Today, it says, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. But to hear today, someone who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Those words are for you today. Those words are God's words to you today. He's giving you an insight into what is going to take place, where the direction of our world is heading, where history is heading. It's heading towards God's eternal plan and purpose of uniting all things under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. And if we do not bow and submit to the authority of Christ now, 
If we choose to continue to reject that, then God will confirm us in it, and that will be our eternal destiny. And that is a very, very serious matter. Very serious. We come to the end of the passage. Paul launches into a prayer, though, of thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonian believers. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. For those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can be assured of the love and the purposes of God for us. You know, we do not have to worry about what is going to happen in this world. We do not have to worry about this rebellion. We do not have to worry about this man of lawlessness that is going to be revealed because we can have great confidence in knowing that even if all this stuff takes place, we ourselves are secure in Jesus Christ. He says, you have been chosen by God to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the church. And that truth, of course, is that they believe the gospel that was preached to them. And because they believe, they now share in the glory of Christ. And in light of that, in light of that knowledge, Paul then calls them in verse 15 to stand firm in what they know and have been taught by this word. By what Paul himself has taught them by word of mouth and by his letters that he has sent to them. Letters, by the way, which he signs personally. You know, there's a, there's a thought here that they had received a false letter you know, claiming to be from the Apostle Paul. When we get to the end of this letter, we'll actually read these words right at the end in chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write Paul says, stand firm in what you know and have been taught. And it was stand firm in what you know and, and read and have learned through this book, the Bible. He finishes with a prayer that they will continue in, that, that God will continue to encourage them in their hearts and strengthen them in every good word and deed. This is the same call to you and I today to stand firm in the truth. So I want to finish just very, very quickly with this. There's just a few things that we need to take away from this passage this morning. And the first is this. We need to be careful what or who we listen to. We need to be really careful, folks as to who and what we listen to and who and things in our lives. As we said, deception is not easy to discern. We see that today. All these people at the moment are being deceived in these things that are these online scams and things like that. People who are just innocently losing thousands and thousands of dollars to online scams. And, and honestly, these things look so real. Deception is, cannot, is, is not easy to discern. And so we need to have eyes that are open to it. And the only way we'll have eyes that are open to it, to the, to the deception of, 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 of Satan trying to turn people against God and his truth, is to know God and his truth through the Bible. 
Now, in a world where we're bombarded with all kinds of opinions and, and ideologies and dogmas and things like that, we need to make sure that we assess everything by the truth. We need a reference point that we can count on, not one that keeps changing. And sadly, in our world today, things continue to change and change drastically and very quickly, don't they? We need to have a foundation that is firm. A truth that is dependable and unchanging and which leads us to life and goodness and hope. And that is indeed the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. You go and read that a little bit later on when you get a chance. Or Matthew 7, where Jesus talks about the wise and foolish builders, about what they built their lives on. The sand, the sinking sand, the shifting sand, or the rock. Psalm 119, verse 105, reminds us that the Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Paul continually reminded these believers, these Thessalonian Christians, to remember what they had been taught. So don't just believe what you hear, test it. Does it line up with what God's Word proclaims? The next thing is this. That despite all the evil that is going on in our world today, and this will continue to go on and, and get worse, remember that ultimately God is sovereign and He is in control. Everything is happening according to His purposes and plans, and nothing can prevent His plans from being fulfilled. Places, I remember Andy Pollo uh, from Baptist World Aid getting up in the, uh, the pulpit here one day and he said, We know the end of the story. Jesus wins. Yes? Jesus wins. And we need to make sure that we are on his side. And the way we do that is, is, by, is by recognizing that Jesus is indeed God himself. That Jesus is indeed the one who came and gave his life as a ransom for our sins, as a substitute for us, dying for our sins. We need to be putting our faith and our trust and our hope in Him and obeying Him in His way. We can't lose heart. We're not to get sidetracked. We're not to be led astray. And folks, we've got, an, we've got a job here to, to keep one another in that as well. We need to, to you know, hold one another accountable. We need to continue to encourage each other to hang on to the Word of God, not to be deceived by false, false teachers and false doctrines and things like that. Instead, as I was saying before, we, we need to, to be doing this, we need to be about the business which God has called us to, setting our hearts on things above, not below, serving Him and His people, living lives that bring glory to Him and pointing others, urging them to be reconciled to God. I beg of you today, do not harden your heart towards God. He has reached out to us, to you, in His love and in His mercy. And through His grace, He's provided the means by which we can be reconciled to Him, to have our sins forgiven, to be rescued from His judgment and be part of His family. And we need to respond to that gospel in repentance and and lastly, we need to rejoice. Rejoice in the knowledge that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Our hope is secure. He has given us His eternal comfort by His grace. 
This isn't a wonderful closing. Um, but Father, we uh, just want to thank you again for your word this morning. Lord, we uh, have skimmed through that passage fairly quickly, but we thank you for the gems that you have revealed to us, Father, by your Spirit. May we indeed be people who today, when we hear your voice, we respond in faith and obedience within our heart and our hearts. And if there be any today here who have heard the word of God to them, who have heard the command to come and trust in Jesus as Saviour and as Lord, may, Lord, you, you continue to do that work in their hearts. And, and, and folks, if, if there be any of you here today, I'll be down there in that corner after the service for, uh, for prayer if you want to come and speak to me about that. And so, God, may you be praised in all things. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.